buzzkills of abortion access front and this is the second part series that we are doing really breaking down um, overall health care especially reproductive care within our prison industrial complex uh, last week we had an incredible conversation around um, overall health care reproductive care and uh, pregnancy in pregnancy care when you're incarcerated and this week we're going to dive into abortion care whether you are someone who's incarcerated, whether you are an undocumented person who is in a detention center. So please, without further ado, she is a professor at UC Irvine. She has an incredible podcast on the issues with Michelle Goodwin that is with Ms. Magazine. And her book is a must read on reproductive justice called Policing the Womb. Let's bring on Dr. Goodwin. Well, this week there was media attention surrounding this topic because in Nebraska, the ACLU had to step in when a Nebraska Department of Correctional Services denied a person that they were holding their legal right to abortion care. And the only reason we heard about this was because it was reported, thankfully, because this person was able to get care within the state of Nebraska. But it was noted that they were facing barriers for the cost of the abortion, for the transport of the abortion, because of course, why would, and this goes back to other legislation like the Hyde Act, why on earth should, should US federal funds you know, transport someone to medical care? So all of these things were wrapped up in this. If you're pregnant and you are being held and you need an abortion, does someone always have to fight for care like this? Um, and, and are there states that have better track records that you found within your research for so, incarcerated folks who are pregnant right. and need abortions? So with regard to the Nebraska case, you're right. The ACLU had to step in, uh, scout, Rickards, who works with the ACLU of Nebraska, said that state officials were barring a woman there from getting an abortion and forcing her to remain pregnant against her will. Um, and this is not unusual. This has happened in other states. The state of California has a reproductive privacy written into its constitution. And so the state of California has been unique in that way. New York has now taken similar measures and there are other states that are looking to enact uh, progressive measures that uh, instantiate this right of privacy into the constitution, particularly given um, the very conservative movements that we see amongst um, senators in the United States Congress and also what we see um, at the state level with the dramatic rise in what are called trap laws, these targeted regulations of abortion providers. And so um, in so many states, because of this dramatic uptick in anti-abortion legislating, I mean, between 2010 and 2013, there were more anti-abortion laws that were proposed and enacted than in the 30 years prior combined. This was part of the rise of the Tea Party. And so with that kind of aggressive movement, and it hasn't stopped, and we see the shifting nature of our courts and also our Supreme Court, and so that kind of sets the backdrop. So a state like California, better. A state like Nebraska, terrible. A state like Mississippi, uh, terrible. A state like Louisiana, terrible. And we could go you know, down the list in that regard. And thank goodness that the ACLU stepped in. Dr. Goodwin, I, I was also wondering too, you know, as we see these intersections between anti-abortion extremists, white supremacy, law enforcement, you know, people who work within the prison system and seeing Christian extremism 
intersecting there. My question is, is there, are you seeing a dovetail within people who are just ignoring the law? Because I do believe that you have, if you need an abortion, no matter what state you're in and you are incarcerated, you are entitled to have an abortion under That's the right. law of that state. So are some of these people who are working within the system who are part of all of those horrible movements and who couldn't wait to deny someone access to abortion, just like ignoring that person's requests? Yes. Yes. I mean, to, to simply put it quite simply, that's absolutely what's what's happening. That's what happened in this Nebraska case. And that's what's happened in other cases. Um, you know, we've seen that during the Trump administration with the ACLU needing to step in involving teenage girls um, who were in detention centers who wanted to end their pregnancies um, in cases that went up before the um, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and the DC Circuit Court of Appeals making it clear to the Trump administration that they could not deny the right to terminate a pregnancy from a person who happens to be in a detention center who is asking for it and following state protocols. So that even in these states where they have these laws that might try to restrict um, abortion based on the number of weeks pregnant or by other kinds of you know, hurdles that one must overcome, you overcome those hurdles, you still are entitled to your right to terminate a pregnancy. It is a constitutional right in the United States. Roe v. Wade has not been overturned, neither Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And I was so frustrated because I don't know what the opposite of a fun fact is, horrifying fact. Horrifying fact is in the case that you talked about in that Jane Doe case of the undocumented person, the judge that wrote the dissenting opinion in that case was now the Supreme Court. <laughs> and 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 I and I remember um I was I'm on the board of Whole Women's Health Alliance and they provided the abortion for Jane Doe. And I remember that happening and I remember Susan Collins saying, I talked to Brett Kavanaugh and he doesn't have any and it's like you didn't need to talk to Brett Kavanaugh. There's a ruling on the books, ma'am. Look yeah. what is wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a book chapter on it. He's, he's, he's... Yes, yes. No, I mean, this is, you are absolutely right. And what's what's interesting is, is how clear that opinion was, that majority opinion was, and then how um, unmoored to law um, was his dissenting opinion. And that is really important to know. So that many of those who have taken these stances um, to uh, thwart the ability for someone to be able to terminate a pregnancy, they're doing so not based on law, right? I mean, that is not what's coming through, but instead what you see are uh, personal predilections um, and also um, a lack of clear legal analysis as driving um, these opinions when you see them coming from certain jurists, like seeing that from um, Kavanaugh in that particular dissent. It wasn't rooted in law and the majority pointed that out. Yeah. Mm. Where does one go with that? Oh, I know. Well, one thing I was gonna say is, you know, you, you brought up Jane Doe, this undocumented person from Central America who needed an abortion was in detention. Can you walk somebody through how somebody who, um, we know that she didn't speak English, we sent, these supportive postcards written in Spanish. We did a campaign just to support her. Can you walk us through how how she found advocates? Well, 
You know, that's a really good question because it's hard. First of all, thank goodness for the organizations that have held themselves out to support individuals who are attempting to immigrate um, under some of the most dire circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the organizations that are also looking out for people who become pregnant, who want to be able to terminate their pregnancies and that are providing the funding and the sourcing to be able um, to do that. Um, and that's critically important. And so, I mean, she wasn't able to do this just on her own. There were advocates um, that stood up and that helped her to navigate the legal system. And the ACLU played a critical role. Bridget and Mary was absolutely great um, in leading those efforts. She was really, really um, terrific in, in that regard. And I think the, the biggest point that you make is one that um, although in her case, it got attention and she was able to navigate the legal system because of a, a kind of strong organization such as the ACLU being able to support her and take her case, there are yet so many other um, young people, um, so many women who do not actually receive that level of support because um, people may not know about the kinds of circumstances that they're experiencing mm -hmm. and um, and that they need these kinds of healthcare services. And so I think that that's part of the real tragedy. You know, one sees a victory in that particular case, but at the same time, um, there's so many others who suffer in silence and are invisible. Yeah, I mean, how many records do we have of people? How do we we don't know, you know, and and when you look into and I'll and I'll put a link in our in our YouTube for this. When you look into Scott Lloyd, who was part of the Health and Human Services Department, who set up this um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, who set up the kids in cages, and whose only experience has been a to be a vaginal crossing guard for anybody. You know, he was he was himself going and monitoring the menstrual cycles of the incarcerated girls. And he is somebody who, when she said, I want an abortion, brought her to a crisis pregnancy center and had people pray over her. I mean, it is profound, this list that he personally kept trying right. to figure out how many of these undocumented people were pregnant and trying to keep them pregnant. It's appalling. And when you when you go in fact, I want to put a link to Bridget Amiri interviewing him because it is one of the most incredible interrogations of a soulless monster by somebody with incredible compassion that I've ever witnessed. Well, you know, the other issue that you're pointing out is this level of surveillance. And this is something that has deeply concerned me. So when I began looking at the criminalization associated with pregnancy, which we could call the new Jane Crow, and here just a shout out to Polly Murray, uh, who was writing about this, a, a fabulous queer Black woman who had been writing about the intersectional harms of race and sex back in the 1930s and 40s. And fortunately, she's just beginning to get her due. But when one looks at um, these practices of criminalization, you know, the state surveillance intensified during the 1980s under Ronald Reagan, um, the sort of perfect coming together of um, the kind of war on drugs, which also was a war on uh, poor women. And this kind of morphed into let's create the sort of fictionalized character of the crack mom 
And then let's tell stories about her crack baby who will never be educable, never be able to hold down a job and will be ultimately criminal. And let's now use that as the backdrop for going after black and brown women. Um, states like Wisconsin enacting uh, laws euphemistically called the crack baby mama law, which provided for civil incarceration to protect the fetus uh, with no protection for a woman to be able to have a lawyer um, at all, but lawyers being appointed for fetuses. Um, you have you know, states that created special ways to shackle pregnant women, right? As if regular shackling wasn't enough, but black box shackling, because we're going to shackle your ankles, shankle your wrist, you know, shackle your wrists, and then we're going to create a shackle around your growing womb as well. Like you can't even make that up. Like who sits in an office one day saying like, we're going to create this special way um, to provide this extra legal punishment um, against these women. But this expansion um, and then of incarceration and the narrative behind it, right? That we've got to yank these women out of society and that these women while they're in society are welfare queens, right? So you got like the welfare queen myth marrying up against the crack mama, you know, myth and then these horrible things being said about their kids. And it just led to a level of surveillance, right? In the state of South Carolina, yeah, prosecutors there was who were who are on record saying that look, I could use the carrot or I could use the stick, but I'm using the stick against these women. I mean, there are stories of black women being dragged out of hospitals, shackled and chained in bloodied gowns, having just given birth. Um, women who thought that they could trust their medical providers and could tell a story about this is my life. I was raped. I'm now pregnant. Yeah, I don't have insurance and I took a drug just to like, you know, um, deal with my pain and anxiety, having no idea that by sharing that with a nurse or doctor that it would be turned over to local prosecutors who are more than happy to use these women as an example of their ability to be tough on crime. So this is the backdrop that leads us to where we are today and Garza v. Hargan, you know, the case that we were talking about and so many others. So. Yeah, it's true. And Moji's going to wrap us up. But the one thing I just wanted to say, Moji, before I turn it over to you is everything Michelle was just talking about reminds me of something that we can't say enough is that this crosses political parties. This was escalating yeah. during Bill Clinton. It was exacerbated by Bill Clinton. And you cannot say enough if you've read Michelle Alexander's book and, and you know, you, you will learn these things. But like, it was the respectability politics of the centrist Democratic Party that really led the way on on this um, on on this very thing that Michelle's talking about. So, um, <laughs> um, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. This was incredibly informative. This was an, a, a subject that we wanted to address a week or two ago. We just were like, we can't do this alone. We need an expert, and it's it's so great of you to step in and be our expert. Um, how can our viewers and listeners become involved in the reproductive justice fight for detained and incarcerated communities? Is there any link or anything you can, any information you can give that can help our listeners really like step in and like fight for people? Sylvia Law has been doing great work uh, in this domain. And so I would definitely say follow her, follow her on Twitter, follow her work. Uh, she's been an advocate because her sister was incarcerated. She's been doing great writing um, within this space. And I would also say, you know, support organizations like yours. I mean, the, the fact that we're able to lift this up 
here today is critically important and there are not enough organizations that are doing this work but i would also say there's a great documentary that's recently come out um, and they have wonderful tools on their website for people to know about and that's belly of the beast which is looking at another end of this which is coercive sterilization behind bars so let's you know level set and see the full picture and i'm just so happy to be with you and looking forward to coming back and we can do more of this yeah my favorite person liz um, I mean, you you break it down so profoundly with clarity and also with such great humanity. You know, I think there the thing that makes change is storytelling and putting human face on what people go through and contextualizing. I mean, we just saw this with three guilty verdicts of a cop for the first time because a prosecution decided to humanize somebody who was murdered by a cop. And so every time we introduce circumstances that we've all been in and realize, you know, why we sit outside of bars versus why we sit inside of bars and check our privilege on that, those stories are, are important. And thank you for telling them and always bringing them because you have all the knowledge inside your head. You could recite a bunch of facts, but you're yeah. reciting. You so, this, this is Liz. Until the next time. Until the next time, Dr. Goodwin. Thank you so much. And we will be there soon. Please be well and take care of yourself. And I hope to see you soon, all vaccinated. Sounds great. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.